Well, uh, I, we kind of had to cut our music a uh, little short so we have time for ordination and everything, but I don't know. I just feel like, like eating half a hamburger. There's just another half there <laughs> waiting to eat, but uh, it's okay. Um, it's, it's good. It's good to worship. Um, our, our series is going through Philippians, and we're talking about the, the key to abiding joy. Okay, the key to abiding joy, and, and we've been covering, you know, since uh, about a month ago, we've been going through this, and, and one thing I hope that you're seeing, I hope that you're seeing that, that the key to abiding joy is to not be focused on yourself. Um, you can be, if you're focused on yourself, you know, you're going to be always chasing, not joy, but you'll be chasing happiness, and happiness is, is elusive, happiness is is you know, it's just one of those things that's never satisfied. Happiness, you know, is fleeting. And there's so many things that, you know, we, you know, we mistake for, you know, what God wants in our lives. And, and unfortunately, you know, we live in a day and age where, where we really worship at the altar of personal happiness. You know, it's why we can't be more disciplined about things. You know, it's because of personal happiness. Um, and so we see that we can't be centered on, our, on ourselves if we want joy. And Paul is certainly showing us this. But we also see that, um, that our, if, it's not, if we're not centered on ourselves, it's not just randomly centered on something else. But that Paul has this kind of two- or three-pronged approach here where he's saying he has joy in the gospel and the reason he can have joy in the gospel, as we've talked about, is because he's experienced what the gospel has done. He's not just saying words. He's not just having the right beliefs. He knows what Jesus Christ has done in his life. He knows how Jesus Christ has changed his heart. That he was on a path that was a life full of bitterness and anger. And now he was on a path that was full of joy and love. And he knows that. He knows that transformation took place at that moment on the Damascus Road. And so there's this, this joy he finds in the gospel, both in his experience of the gospel, but also as he hears that others are experiencing the gospel. When he hears about, about the Philippian Christians and how they're experiencing the gospel, that brings him joy. It brings him joy when he hears that there's people going out and preaching the gospel because he knows that message is getting out wider and wider. More and more people are hearing it. And that brings him joy. And I just want to re-ask the question that, you know, that I asked when I preached the sermon on this particular thing. Does the gospel bring us that joy? Does it bring us the joy that when we know that that the gospel is being lived and being proclaimed, that we have joy in that. And I got to think that if it doesn't, it's because we're not really experiencing the gospel the way that Paul experienced it. Because if you are like Paul, where you know what Christ has done in your life, and you know how that's not just you know, helped you but it's helped you then become a person who reaches out and helps others. And you can see, like, this is the hope for the world. If you know that from your personal experience, 
I can't see why it can't bring you joy. But we've kind of become, I think, sometimes complacent about that. And his, his direction outside of himself is not simply towards the gospel. It is towards the gospel. But it's also towards others. And he's, his, his audience here that he's writing to is not just others. It's others in the church. It's others that he's, in, he's invested in. It's others who've invested in him. And he's encouraged and he, and he finds joy in that. You see, the more that we are willing to um, share the gospel, the more that we're willing to disciple others, the more that we're willing to invest in the lives of the others, we, we create this almost unlimited source of joy. If you think at this point in your life, if you've invested in, in two people, well, you might hear some good reports from two people, but maybe you don't even see them anymore. But if you spent a lifetime of sharing the gospel, if you spent a lifetime of investing in other people and helping them to grow in their faith, there may be hundreds, if not thousands, that you find great joy in. It's why Paul's like, it's just overflowing. At this point, when, when all of this is going on, when he's writing this, he's already, you know, planted so many churches. He's already seen so many people come to Christ. So many people grow in their faith. It's, it's an unlimited supply of joy. Well, today it's kind of along the same lines of, of, of what brings joy. But before we talk about that, you know, I, I remember um, growing up that we basically thought there were three kinds of ice cream. Now, I grew up in a really small town in West Virginia. Um, my first two years of my life, there was a town, it was a town of, of 60, 60. Um, and then we moved to the big, big town of Terrell, Oklahoma, that had 600. So 60 to 600. And we only thought there were three kinds of ice cream. And the only reason we thought there were three was because of Neapolitan ice cream, okay? Because there are three different colors. But otherwise, we would have pretty much thought there were only two kinds. That, you know, it's either chocolate or, or vanilla. You know, but then, of course, Neapolitan told us, oh, there's a pinkish one that looks like strawberry. So now we knew that there was at least three. Well, if we never knew any more than those, those three, we'd have been happy because... You know, ice cream's good. But then along came Baskin and Robbins. Anybody remember how many flavors Baskin and Robbins had? 31. And that's like, oh, wow, 31. And so, you know, we, if, if we ever were fortunate enough to go to Baskin and Robbins, then, you know, you just can't even, you don't even know what to choose. Just, it's just so many. But then all of a sudden we knew there was, there was more. But we were perfectly happy with just the, the three because we didn't know there was any more. I used to, um, you know, when I, I, I'm of the age that had the transition from no computers to computers. And one of the things I learned really early was if you, 
if you ever thought your computer was getting slower, there was usually only one reason for it. And the reason was it's because you use somebody's faster computer. And I personally experienced this, and then I would have people come and tell me, like, my computer, it's slowing down. You know, and this is back in the late 80s, early 90s, when speeds were significantly different. And, and then they would tell me, like, oh, yeah, I was at my friend's house, and I used their computer. And because their computer was so much faster, all of a sudden, this computer that was perfectly okay with them, because they didn't know there was anything more, was suddenly slow. And it really hadn't changed at all. They had changed. And I think that's, you know, two examples of things that happen in our lives where a lot of times we are willing to settle. We're willing to settle for three flavors of ice cream. We're willing to settle for a slower computer. We're willing to settle for things because we don't know that there's anything more. And when it comes to things like ice cream and it comes to things like computers and cars and things like that, okay, that's one thing. But when it comes to the things that matter most, there is a lot of people who have settled for less than love. They've settled for less than joy. They've settled less than having Christ in their lives. And because they've kind of made do, you know, they, they're not necessarily going to seek for more. In fact, they may not even know there is more. That's what Paul is going to help us see. Like what part of our job is as Christians is to help people see what is more. And as, as we've talked about Philippians in context, here's Paul writing a letter trying to encourage and comfort and bring joy to people who are free. They can go wherever they want. Paul is under house arrest. Paul can't leave a space, you know, maybe not even as big as this stage. He can't go anywhere. People can come see him and all of that. But he's really stuck in this place. And in fact, he is, he's awaiting trial. And it's, you know, we always think about that and you know, about, about, about awaiting trial. And we always think like, oh, he's going to go to a court. No, he's appealed to the emperor. And if it's the emperor we think it is the emperor at this particular time, he's appealed to a guy who's crazy. It's Nero. Nero is nuts, insane. And that's who's going to hear his case. And Paul knows this. It seemed to be that most of the people in Rome knew this. But he was the emperor. And so in that situation, we find this remarkable man named Paul teaching the Philippians and teaching us about joy. And, and, and I think it's important to always remind ourselves of the context because it takes away so many of our excuses. And it helps us to see the difference between joy and happiness. Paul's joy wasn't, wasn't you know, based on the fact that he was out there doing God's will the way he thought he could do it and be a missionary and going to Spain. That, that was his next trip. He wanted to go to Spain. You know, he wasn't out there, you know, connecting with all of these people that he had invested in. It wasn't his freedom. It wasn't his mobility. It wasn't his, even his ministry success. 
and yet he has joy. And it's so, like, you know, strange that people who have, have, who have way more stuff and way more freedom than Paul had struggle with joy. And so he says this in chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So here's Paul, and, and he's encouraging them, and he's making this connection back to what he had said earlier about walking in a manner worthy, worthy of the gospel, worthy of your calling. And remember, we've just come through this incredible passage of Scripture that talks about Jesus. And it talks about both the humiliation of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus. And Paul's used that to tell them, this is the mind we need to have. This is the attitude we need to have if we really want to have God-pleasing unity. But he knows that it's not natural to us, even for Christians. Even for those of us who, who have who called upon the name of the Lord and, and, and we've been made new and we have the Holy Spirit, it's not natural to us and so that's why he has to say he has to say work out your own salvation and what we what we see here is we we see that paul is saying there is an element to christianity that you have to work at it so that you will grow you work at it so that you will grow. And you need to know this. It is God's will that you grow. It is God's will that you grow. God wants each of us to grow spiritually. Now you might go, well, of course he does. I knew that. Well, are you growing? Are you growing spiritually? This, notice there's not a... Paul doesn't say like, oh, all of you guys who've been Christians for 20 years, you don't need to grow anymore. I'm talking to only the ones who've been Christians for two or three years. He's not just talking to the kids. He's not just talking to, to the teenagers or the young adults. He's talking to everybody. Do, do we know that we are actively growing in the, in, in, in the Spirit? Are we growing in our faith? If we were to look back over the past two, three, four, five years, do we, do we see a difference? 
Are we more like Christ today? Because if we're going to say, oh yeah, 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 I know God wants us to grow spiritually, then why aren't we growing spiritually? Why aren't we being more like the Christ Paul just wrote about? And I know it's hard sometimes. It's hard because, you know, truly humble people don't like to acknowledge that they're humble because that often leads to pride in being humble, just kind of weird. And I know it's hard. And I know sometimes, like, the, the change that takes place in our lives, it's, it's, it's like watching grass grow. If you've ever tried to watch grass grow, I remember when I first heard about this as a kid, I felt the need to try to see if I could actually watch grass grow. And I don't know how much of my life I wasted, hopefully not more than an hour. But, you know, I, sometimes it's, it's, the growth is imperceptible. But I can tell you this, especially when I had to mow the lawn, I knew the grass was growing, even if I never actually saw it. And that's why I ask you, do, do you look back over your life not just from before you were a Christian. Most of us will say like, yeah, I'm, a, I'm more like Christ than before I was a Christian. But what about just the last few months? Are we growing spiritually? It is God's will. And part of this understanding of, of joy is that we want to do God's will. Paul is challenging these Philippians. He's saying, you aren't fully the example of Christ's humility, and that's not a criticism. None of us is. But he's saying, but don't use that as an excuse. Don't say like, well, you know, I can't be like Christ. Don't use it as an excuse. Work it out. Work it out. And if it's done with joy, it's going to be a willing obedience. That's what Christ was. That's what Christ did. Christ didn't just obey. He obeyed willingly, freely. It's going to be humble. It's not going to be growing so that you can earn more you know, badges. So you can be you know, the Christian who has all the, you know, all the awards. That's not why. It's done in humility. And it's done ultimately to serve. And everybody likes to talk about serving God. And you know what? You should talk about serving God. But a lot of people like to talk about serving God because when you talk about serving God, you can kind of keep it somewhat ambiguous and you can kind of make it whatever it means. You know, you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. But Paul, and not just Paul, others that we find in the New Testament, don't just say serve God. They talk about serving one another. You see, when we take it just from talking about serving God and we start talking about serving one another, and especially in the church, in your local church, you can also ask that question. Who are you serving? Who are you serving in your church? Whose needs are you meeting? Whose needs do you even know about? 
And so growing spiritually helps us. It helps us be more aware of needs. It helps us also to be better equipped to serve. And that should bring us joy. It should bring us great joy. You know, I, I, you know, I hate to be sometimes when I you know, go to the hospital and I remember when my, when my dad had had his heart surgery and he's, he's, he was in the hospital for about six months. And we would go and visit him as much as we could. And what I hated was I, I didn't have any way to, to fix what was physically wrong with him. And it was too late at that point. I couldn't say like, Dad, can you hold on for two years? I'm going to go to medical school. As a matter of fact, I might need five years. Can you hold on for five years? Because after medical school, I'm, I'm going to specialize in cardiology. And then I'll, I'll, I'll come help you. And, and we've all been in that situation where we've seen people that need help and we want to help. And the people who can actually help them aren't helping. And you want to help and you, you don't have the ability to help. It should bring you great joy when you grow spiritually because when you grow spiritually, you are better able to help people in every situation. It should bring us joy. And we, we have to see that spiritual growth, it's more than just a sense. It's more than just a feeling. You know, I told you last week, love is a feeling. You know, make no mistake. Some people say love's not a feeling. Love's an action or love's this or love's that. But... Love is a feeling, but it's not only a feeling. Spiritual growth, there is a feeling we have, spiritual growth, but it's not only a feeling. And that's why Paul is saying, we've got to work it out. It's, it's knowing God's will more and doing it. There is always this element of obedience and we don't like this word. We do not like this word obedience. Obedience has this negative feel for us because, because obedience seems to be something that, you know, like that, you know, strong people make weak people do. Even though we just read that Jesus willingly obeyed, and yet we still think obedience is for the weak. And it's not. Especially, especially in the context of God's love. If it's in the context of God's love, and if I really believe God, if I really trust God, and I really think that God is, knows everything, and that He is good, and that He is loving, and that He has my best and our best at heart, then what should God do? Well, I would think God in that position would try to tell me the best way that I could live. What then should I do? Challenge him? Get upset when his word doesn't go along with culture and society and my feelings and what I want? Should that be what I do? Or should if I really trust him, I really love him, should I say, this is your word, God, and the best way I can show that I love you is I will obey you. We don't like that. It takes away too much of our freedom. It takes away too much of our flexibility. 
And yet if we're going to grow, and we're going to grow spiritually, it's going to come out in that we are not only know God's will more, but that we are obedient to it. And again, that as soon as you hear that word, it gets all we get all negative about it. But really, what Paul is asking them to do, everything Paul is asking them to do, he's asking them to do is it's actually for their benefit. They're going to be stronger. He's already told them you're going to be facing persecution, and it's coming sooner than later. It's going to make them stronger. It's going to make them be able to stand up against against whatever is coming. And he hasn't really specified it here. What's coming? But it's interesting the way Paul does this. Everything he tells them to do is for their benefit. But he always says it in a way to say, you're doing it for my benefit. I don't think he's being manipulative. I don't think he's lying. I think he really believes that this brings me joy. But he's doing this for, I think, for this reason. That if he tells, if he keeps telling them, If you do this, you will benefit. If you do this, you will benefit. If you do this, you will benefit. If he keeps telling them that, they're never going to become other-directed. He's just basically taken self-absorption, self-direction, and he's Christianized it. It's kind of what happened to the the church in America in the 20th century. We we made Christianity all about me and all about you and, and what you get out of it and the blessings you can get and, and the joy and the peace and everything you, you, you get. And so we were like, okay, I can take the things I like and leave behind the things I don't want. And we just so seriously diluted the gospel. We so seriously weakened the church. Because everything was expressed to what Jesus did for you and how you can benefit. And too small was the other voice. Too, too, too quiet was the other voice. That we don't do these things simply to benefit. God doesn't bless us simply to bless us. It's to equip us so that we can go out and serve others. It's to equip us so that we can go out and meet needs. It's to equip us so that we can go out and make a difference in our culture. And we've largely forgotten that. Paul doesn't do that. He keeps them thinking, if you do these things, it's going to bring me joy. In fact... He's even going to say it's going to bring God joy. But he also wants to remind them that even though in their experience it is, you know, they're working out their own salvation with fear and trembling, he wants to make sure they understand it's really God at work in you. You're going to put out the effort, but it's God at work in you. I saw this site on the uh, road the other day, which is now illegal, but all of us who were children of the 60s and 70s, we all probably have this memory, some in our heads. And that's when mom, usually not mom, usually dad, let you sit on his lap and drive the car while the car's actually driving. I don't want confessions, 
of who either was allowed to do this or who had actually did this with their kids. But we know that's really not a good idea, but I actually saw somebody doing it. It was actually a mom, and she had her child sitting in the front seat, and the child had her hands on the steering wheel. I was like, holy smokes. But if we look at that, like, is kid really driving? Well, we hope not. And truth is, they're not. And I think sometimes that's, that's the picture we have. We have the picture of God letting us get the feel for doing what is right. He gives us, you know, the, the, the sense. And it, in our minds, we're doing it. But Paul's saying, but it's really God at work in you. And I love what he says in verse 13. He says, it is both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, in verses 14 through 16, he, he goes back to talking about unity. And he talks about the spirit of unity, the spirit of harmony. And it's that God's will is that our spiritual growth leads to greater unity. See, one of the things about our spiritual growth, again, is not, it's not just for our benefit. It does benefit us. But it also benefits the church. The more we grow spiritually in our individual lives, the stronger we should become as a church. If you have found that your supposed spiritual growth is pulling you farther and farther away from your Christian brothers and sisters, I'm going to challenge you on that. Because I'm not really sure that's spiritual growth. That's something else. The more we love God, the more we know God, the greater love we have for God should lead to a greater love that we have for His people. That's something that's been connected in the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Those two things are connected. You get the belief in God, the love for God wrong, you will create disunity. You will get the relationships between human beings wrong. They're connected. It's why in the Ten Commandments we see the two tablets. It's why when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He, he actually gives two. He says to love the Lord your God, and then he says to love your neighbor as yourself. They're connected. Whenever the, the Israelites, you know, almost every time prophecy comes against the Israelites, it's, it's always two things they're being uh, condemned for, criticized for, judged for. Idolatry, their relationship to God. Social injustice, their relationship to each other. It's connected. And it's connected here in our lives. There is, there is no such thing as spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, that doesn't lead to a greater love and a greater unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's God's will. It's what He wants. And that's why He's, he's saying, you know, do, do these things. Follow God's will. Work out your salvation. But do it without the grumbling. 
and the disputing. And how can you do that? Well, only if you have joy. And that takes us back to that earlier verse where it kind of connects all these thoughts together that, yes, spiritual growth is God's will and His good pleasure, and being united is God's will and His good pleasure. Again, how does this happen? It comes from being other-directed. As long as your attention is turned to yourself, you cannot really have community. Think about this for a second. Can you imagine a healthy community of babies? Yeah, it's all babies. Just put 20 babies in a room. Can it be healthy? Probably not. And one of the biggest reasons is babies are self-directed. Necessarily so, by the way. Um, if not, they're probably not going to survive. What about toddlers? A bunch of two, three-year-olds. Just, hey, two, three-year-olds, I want you to organize yourselves. Have at it. I want you to have a healthy community. Probably not. But we would hope that if you get adults together that they would know how to learn, you know, to cooperate. They would know how to, you know, figure out how to relate and get along. Well, Paul's taking it a step further. He's saying we should all be other-directed. And that this actually brings God great joy when this happens because one, he, he sees the unity and then the second thing is he, there's, he knows that we're allowing him to work in our lives. Whenever I think about the joy that God has, I, you know, I think about the Old Testament passage that talks about that God rejoices over his people with singing. It's, like, it's, it's such a weird image to have in your head that God is singing and he's rejoicing over his people. You see, again, spiritual growth and unity, it's not just for my benefit. I do it for the God who I say I love and that it brings him pleasure. Well, if I was a writing teacher, I would criticize Paul for this, but I'm not being a writing teacher at this moment. Because Paul engages here in what is sometimes called a mixed metaphor. He says, where he says, children of God, he says, you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, if you think like crooked and twisted, you think like, okay, he's going to talk about straightening something out. But he doesn't. He then talks about shining a light, that we will shine as lights in the world. And the message, even through the mixed metaphor, is simply this. God uses our unity to be light in a crooked world. I don't know why God does this. I don't know why God trusts His precious treasure in the hands of people like us. But 
this is God's crazy plan. God's crazy plan is, I'm going to bring together all these people who don't have any real connection. They're not family. They're not all the same ethnicity. They're not the same gender. They're from various socioeconomic you know, groups. I'm going to bring them all together. And through my word and through my spirit, I'm going to have them be such an exceptional community that the rest of the world will see me through them. See, we all think about that from an individual level. Do others see Jesus in you? You know, we sing songs like that. And I think we're afraid to ask this, this, this other question. Do others see Jesus through us, through our church, through how we treat one another, through how we speak to one another, through how we cooperate and work together? Do others see Jesus in us? And that's God's plan. We've individualized that to mean like, oh, you know, for me. But we've left behind His real plan. And His real plan is that we would be His light in this world. And it's how we live together that shows up. And even though that crooked path doesn't totally make sense, you know, in terms of like a perfect metaphor. I think it kind of works. I think it kind of works because if they're on a crooked path, the big problem is they need to get off the path. They've gotten lost. And the only way you're going to be willing to leave the path you're on, which at least is a path, is if you see a light that shows you where the other path is. It's our job. And I'm you know, sorry to say it's a job I think we've decided is optional. We've decided really close church unity is optional. We've decided healthy relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ is optional. All that really matters is I have a right relationship with Jesus and that other part is important, but it's optional. It's not optional. It's not optional. And Satan has succeeded in not even laying a trap. We made the trap. And now he's succeeded in springing it on us. We laid the trap of focusing so much on the individual faith and just putting aside the idea of the community of faith that the church is so divided now even though they're all sitting in the same room. Because no one, no one has come to grips and said, this is so important that it cannot be optional. In fact, it's not nearly, merely moving from optional to you know, more important, but that it is right there as the most important thing we need to do. And so, you know, we're good. We come to, you know, we associate with the church when we want to. We pop into Bible studies here and there. You know, we come to worship. We kind of care about people. Oh, there's a few people we're close to. But does it extend beyond that? 
unity. It's, it's the light. It's showing that God, what God is trying to do, what God says the gospel is going to do, which is to bring from every nation, every tribe, every tongue together as one, the church is a small sample of that. And if the world doesn't get to see it, it will settle for less. I can tell you this, I don't know who's going to win the presidential election. I don't know what the future of our country is. But I know this, no matter who wins, it will be less. It will be less than what God wants. And the reason, sadly, people don't know there is more is because there's not enough Christians and not enough churches showing them that there's more. Just understand. I think here at Wildlife Baptist Church, we, we get a lot of things right. I think we're kind of moving in a lot of ways in the right direction. And so I don't ever want to make anybody feel like, oh, there's no trace of this here. But we can do more. We can be more. We can strengthen our unity. And that unity comes from us growing spiritually. Paul ends with this image of being poured out as a drink offering. And again, sometimes we miss this. Paul's focus is actually on what the Philippians did. We focus on what Paul's doing because it's like, oh, he poured out, like, oh, he's dying. You know, and, and it's probably what he's talking about, that he could very well die. But what he's, he's actually saying, the main offering, because the pouring out was like what's called a libation, a drink offering. That's, that wasn't the main offering. That was the secondary offering. The main offering is their sacrificial offering. The sacrificial offering of your faith. And so the focus is on their, on their offering. And he coming along with a lesser offering. But again, for Paul, this is joy because, because the unity, the spiritual growth in the Philippians, what he's seen has happened to them and how it's extended to their service and their concern for him, it brings him joy. And every time they, they do, and every time they faithfully live, and every time they, they have this unity, it affirms in Paul not just that he worked hard for them and that it's not going to be in vain, but also that the power of God is being demonstrated. And so that should be our prayer. Our prayer is that we would grow. We would grow in our faith and that our growth in our faith would lead to a strengthening of our unity. And that will help us be a witness to this world of who God is. Let's pray.